and amen. And, and amen. How's everybody today? For those of you who might have snuck in, I think y'all know me, but I'm going to tell you who I am anyway. My name is Chris, and I am the lead pastor here at Hope Springs Church. And look, I am excited. Um, I'm always excited when we get to start a new uh, sermon series. And this one really kind of has me a little more excited than some because we're going to do something I don't always do, which is spend some considerable time in a single book of the Bible to figure out what God wants us to know from that book of the Bible. And this time, we're going way back into the old school locker. We're going to be studying one of the books of the Old Testament, a book by the name of Ruth. We're going to be studying the book of Ruth. We're going to be there for several weeks. And and the book of Ruth is uh, a little different than many of the books of the Bible. It's a little different than many of the Old Testament books of the Bible. But from this book, we can learn so much about the faithfulness of God, We can learn a lot about relationships, about finding the right people in our lives, about becoming the right person in someone's life. We can learn about the providence of God. In fact, Ruth is one of those kind of often overlooked books, but if you read through it, in my brain anyway, it kind of plays out like a movie. It's kind of like one of the, you know, like, like it could be written for the big screen. And you know, just for fun, just for fun, uh, who, who are all my action movie kind of people out here? Who likes the, who likes the, who are the people who strongly believe that Die Hard is a Christmas movie? Everybody else say boo. <laughs> the movies with the car chases and the shoot 'em ups and all that kind of stuff. Ruth is not an action movie. How about my comedy movie people? Who likes the comedy? And I, this is where I live, right? I will watch any movie starring Adam Sandler. And let me tell you what, the dumber, the better. I could watch Waterboy every day, all day long. If it was on a continuous loop, I would be watching it. And not only would I be watching it, but I will be quoting every line of the movie in time with the movie. I love comedies. I love to laugh. I love those big belly laughs over stupid jokes. Ruth is not a comedy. How about... How about the superhero Marvel uh, Universe people? Anybody out there like that? Anybody? There's a couple of them. There's a couple of them. I'm not, that's not my genre, by the way. I watched uh, two movies in that genre. The first was Thor. That was like one of the first ones ever put out. And then we watched Black Panther. And they were both good movies, but I just can't live there. You know, it's not. Ruth, by the way, is not a superhero movie. What about thrillers? Anybody like the thrillers? Anybody like to be like on the edge of your seat, like waiting to be jumping out of your skin and, and, you know, kind of like the more weird, the better. I like thrillers. If it was a comedy thriller, that'd be even better. There's a couple of those. Uh, Ruth, by the way, is not a thriller. Am I forgetting anything? Action? Comedy? Rom-coms? Rom-coms, better known as chick flicks. Hey, look, I'm, 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 I am, man, I am in touch with my manly side, right? My man card got, got shredded up a long time ago. In fact, this is a true story. <laughs> I was at home by myself. Everybody else was asleep. Emily was upstairs. Susie was upstairs. And I turned on Jerry Maguire. And let me tell you what, when I got to the end and he's like, hello, and she's like, you complete me. And she's like, you had me at hello. I was tearing up a little bit. I mean, come on. Who doesn't like a good chick flick? I mean, I do. I do. If Ruth were a movie, it would absolutely be a chick flick. 
it would absolutely be a chick flick because there's no like Sylvester Stallone kind of character. There's no like Liam Neeson kind of character. In fact, we got more like Jennifer Aniston, Drew Barrymore kind of characters. There's no shootouts, no explosions, nobody climbing through the, what is it, Namagaki, whatever tower, or Christmas. Knock, oh, yeah, plot on the pox upon me, Brandon. A pox upon me. None of that, no car chases. It's just two women and a lot of talking. It's a chick flick. In fact, of the 85 verses in Ruth, true story, 55 of them are dialogue. It's a chick flick. But it's a very powerful story of tragedy and redemption and of faith. A story about two women who sadly lost everything. But in, in that tragedy, in all that's going through, we see that God is present. It's not what you would expect. It's not like other books of the Bible. There is no miracles being performed. There are no partings of the seas. There are no people healing the sick. There are no dead being raised to life. Not like what you would expect from a book of the Bible, but on every page, in every verse, in everything that we read in the book of Ruth, we see the presence and the power and the providence of God. And I hope over the next several weeks that this book of the Bible will speak to those of us who might be hurting, who might be a little discouraged. Those of us who know that God has something better for you and yet you don't see it. And maybe you're just beginning to lose a little bit of the hope you once had that God is out there. It will speak to you if you feel stuck in a place that you know you shouldn't be. I hope this book will speak to you. So everybody turn to the book of Ruth. Today's message is called, When It's Time to Walk Away. Let me pray for us. Father God, there is not one word of your entire scripture that is wasted or superfluous or unnecessary. And even in the simple, just dialogue stories that you give us in your word, there are great truths to be learned. So help us, Father. Help us to drop the walls. Help us to open ourselves up to your truth, because some of this may not be easy for some of us to hear. And help us to understand what you're trying to teach us in these moments. Just to, Not just today, but today and for the next several weeks as we move through your word. So Father, use me in any way you see fit. Use me in any way that you feel the need to. Let it be all about you, nothing about me. And God, as always, we ask that you continue to fill this place with your presence. Because if you are here, then nothing else matters. And if you're not here, then nothing else matters. And so we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And together as a church, we'll say... Amen. If you're at home, type amen. Turn to Ruth chapter 1. We're going to read every verse, verse by verse. We're not. We're not. But we are going to dig right in. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. Everybody say Elimelech just because it's fun to say. Elimelech. See, you got to say it with a little bit of grit. Elimelech. Man's name was, name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. Everybody say Naomi. 
And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. I won't make you say that. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, the first thing that we kind of need to understand before we start digging in a little bit more is the first verse of Ruth says, in the days when the judges ruled. This is important. In the days when the judges ruled. Now, what that means is that there was a time when God's people were not ruled by kings. They were ruled by judges who tried to keep the peace, who tried to make everybody do the right thing, but it didn't always work out so well. In fact, if you are in the book of Ruth and you just go back one page to the last page of the book of Judges, which is directly before Ruth, we read this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So this is the context that we enter the book of Ruth. No kings, and everybody did as they saw fit. They're just running around all willy-nilly, doing whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, with whomever they want, with no regard for anything that God says. Sounds a little bit like today, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit like the world we live in. They did whatever they saw fit back then when the judges ruled. So who have we met? We've met our main characters. We met our main characters, a man named Elimelech. He's the husband. Elimelech translates to my God is king. Elimelech. And by say my God is king. And we meet his wife, Naomi, whose name translates to sweet or pleasant. Everybody say Naomi. Sweet and pleasant. We meet his sons. Now, it's interesting back in that day that that husband and wife would name their sons in one of two ways. They would either name their, their children, not just their sons. They would name their children either by what they wanted them to be, right? So they might na- name them something that translated to true or strong or godly or warrior or whatever it was. Or they named them by what they saw. So if I was born and my parents named me by what they saw, my name would translate to big nose, ugly feet. Okay, this is kind of how it goes. Big nose, ugly feet. That would have been me. And maybe Christopher means that. I don't really know. because I, I mean, I know what it means. But. So we've got Malon, whose name translates to sick or sickly. We've got Killian, whose name translates to frail or tired. So we got Elimelech and Naomi, and they're walking around like, meet my son, sick and tired. I didn't even know it was an option to name your kids sick and tired because you know how many times in the years I've raised my kids that I have said those words, sick and tired. I'm just telling you what it says right here, folks. I'm, you know, just keeping it real up in here. We got my God is my king. We got sweet and pleasant and we got sick and tired. We got sick and tired. And there's a famine. They live in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the city of God. Bethlehem, the city of David. There's a famine there, and Elimelech is worried about his family. So he says, I'm going to move my family from the city of David, the city of God, over to Moab. It's about a 30, a 50-mile trek to Moab from Bethlehem. If they were walking, which they probably were, they'd have been walking maybe three miles an hour. It would have taken them about two days by the time they stayed at the Motel 6 overnight and, you know, got free continental breakfast and all that kind of stuff. And, and so they're moving from Bethlehem to Moab. The only problem is there's a big uh-oh here. God had strictly forbidden his people to live 
in Moab. None of God's people should be living in Moab. And the reason is, is the Moabites were descendants of a man named Moab. That makes sense, right? And, and the reason this is a problem is because we read in Genesis 19 that Lot's daughters, you might remember Lot, they were leaving Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's wife turned around. She turned into a pillar of salt, and away we went. Lot's here. His daughters get him drunk, do the thing, have a baby named Moab who was conceived in this sinful relationship. And the Moabites are descendants of them, of him. They worship false gods. One of those gods is a god named Shemosh. And in order to appease this god, they regularly participated in the practice of child sacrifice. These were the Moabs, the Moabites. This is why God, if you want to know what God thinks of Moab, by the way, you can read in Psalm 60 that he says, Moab is my wash basin. My wash basin, that is the same thing that somebody would bring their dirty, smelly, animal feces encrusted feet in and wash. This is what God thinks of Moab. So we've got a guy named Elimelech, which literally means my God is my king, who is not living as if his God was his king because he's doing whatever was right in his own eyes, just like everybody else when the judges ruled. And I think sometimes, if we're honest, it's kind of where we live sometimes, isn't it? We claim God as our king, and yet we're doing whatever we see fit without much regard for what God wants. I understand. Elimelech can't feed his family. He, he wants to do what's right in his own eyes. I can imagine many of us might do the same thing. If, if Garrett and Giant and Safeway and Green Valley and all those places ran out of food, there was no place to get all the rofos closed down so I couldn't have any fried chicken, no fast food, and we were in a place where we couldn't eat, maybe there was no work, we might do some things. We might do some things that were right in our own eyes. That's what Elimelech did. It was right in his eyes, but it wasn't God's way. It wasn't what God wanted. He could rationalize it. We do that a lot when we're doing what we see fit. We rationalize. Maybe he's like, there's a better economy in Moab. I could find a job there. I'm sure they got food. They got lots of agriculture. Maybe we can get a house. Maybe I can provide a better life for my family. But we have to be so careful, I want to warn us, because when it comes to our families, we're often tempted to prioritize economic provision over spiritual protection. More money, less God. More world, less God. More things, less God. We have to be very careful. They were tough times. They left Bethlehem. They left God's people to go to the sinful land of Moab. And I want to ask you guys a question. When your times get tough, when things seem a little dark, when you're going through that valley, what do you do? Do you trust and obey God? Or do you move to Moab? Because if God is the king of our lives, everybody, is, everybody, is God the king of everybody's lives? I don't see one. Come on, people. Is God the king of your life? Let me hear it. Thank you. We want to obey him, right? 
That should be a given. If God is the king of our lives, we want to obey him. We want to trust him. We want to do what he says. But, you know, God says some things. He's like, you shouldn't have sex before you're married. And you're like, I want to obey that, God, but I'm dating and I'm waiting and I've got a need for mating. I just got to get out there, God. I don't know. What do we do? What do we do? Do we trust and obey God or do we move to Moab? We say, God, you've blessed me so much. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to give you back 10% right off the top of everything. Is that before taxes or after taxes? Can I take out my personal expenses first, God? We ask those questions, right? We're like, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful, God, until times get tight. And then we stop being faithful to God. And then we wonder why times get even tighter. What do we do in that situation? Do we trust and obey God who says, I will provide for all your needs as long as you are faithful to me? Or do we move to Moab? You might say, I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm not going to get drunk. I can't live that lifestyle anymore. I'm not going to smoke that. I'm not going to drink that. I'm not going to party anymore. I'm not going to do that. And you get on that wagon and you're driving down the road. And then you have a whole bunch of stress in your life. You have a whole bunch of tragedy in your life. What do you do? What do you do? Do you trust and obey God? Or do you move to Moab? I want us to understand this. And if you're a writing down kind of person, write this down. When times get tough, Moab looks real tempting. When times get tough, it's real easy for us to leave where God is and do whatever we see fit. And I'm not judging. I'm not judging. I understand Elimelech's dilemma. He, he was scared that his family was going to starve. He was scared that they may not even be existing anymore in a couple of years because they can't eat. But here's the thing. If we're honest with ourselves, most of us have gone to Moab under far less pressure. Most of us don't need a famine. Most of us don't need a big tragedy in our lives. Most of us have gone to Moab under far less pressure than that. We say God is our king, but sometimes we just do what's right in our own eyes. We just do what's right, whatever we see fit. But if we keep reading, we'll understand that's probably not the way we should go. Because what happened? What happened? They left God's people. They left God's will. And maybe you're thinking, oh, well, it could turn out all right. I mean, Moab was a booming place. They had money. They had agriculture. They had people. They had all this guy. You mean Shemash? Yeah. Well, we'll just steer clear of him. And all could be good. But it wasn't. Because in chapter 3, we read this. Now, Elimelech, I mean, verse 3, not chapter 3, Ruth 1, verse 3. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. And they married Moabite women, <coughs> one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion, her two sons, sick and tired, also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. They left God's will to go to Moab, a place they were forbidden to live. And what happens? First, Elimelech dies. We don't know how he died. Could have had a stroke. Could have had a brain tumor. Could have had an aneurysm. Could have gotten run over by a camel. Could have gotten caught up in a chariot race. We don't know. But left his wife in a bad place. 
Naomi is less than 50 miles from where God is in Bethlehem. Two days journey, but she stays there for another 10 years. Long enough for her sons to do something else that was prohibited. Her sons married Moabite women. God had said, you cannot do that. You can't. You shall not marry those women. And I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, maybe they just thought, oh, they're cute. They're pretty. They got a nice figure. Maybe they're making some good children. Maybe they got good personality. Maybe they'll convert. Maybe they'll convert. You know, once we get married and we get things in there, well, maybe they'll just come over and they'll convert to, to, to Judaism and, and, and everything will be good. We do that, right? We get in these relationships and we're like, oh, well, it doesn't matter if they don't know God. It doesn't matter if they don't love God. It doesn't matter if they don't they think the same things I do. You know, we'll marry them anyway. And, you know, we just hope that they convert. And we do it for a lot less than religion, right? We marry people we know are the wrong people. And we're like, I'll just change them. Ever change them? Nope. 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 Listen, God gives us boundaries to protect us. This is one of the big ones, by the way. He says, you shouldn't marry a non-believer. If you call yourself a Christian, he says, you should not be unequally yoked. We read that, and what that means is if you are a follower of Christ, you should not be yoked in the bonds of matrimony to somebody who is not a follower of Christ. It's not because God doesn't want you to have any fun. It's not because God wants to be restrictive. It's not because he wants to be a big, fat meanie. It's because he loves you. If God is the king of your life, why would we want to share our lives? Why would we want to raise a family? Why would we want to spend the next 50, 60, 70, 80 years with a person who doesn't know God? Think about it. Think about it. We might be like, but they're so cute. They're so, I just love looking at her. I love looking at her. (laughs) But when your kids get sick, when there's a famine, When your parents die, when you get sick, when all these things that happen always happen, your partner can't pray with you. Your partner can't pray for you. Maybe they're like, I just rub my cute on them. They'll get better. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. God gives us these rules to protect us because he loves us. They left Bethlehem so they wouldn't die. What happened in Moab? Three of them died. Three of them died within 10 years. So Ruth's story begins with three women who have no homes, no money, and no hope. Finally, after 10 years in Moab, Naomi decides she's going to go back to Bethlehem. Finally. It took her 10 years. I mean, if it had been me, my wife dies, I'm like, okay, I'm out of here. I'm going back. 10 years. Long enough for her sons to get in a sinful relationship and then die. I don't know if God calls them to die because they weren't. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not reading anything into the line. Three years, 10 years. And so then we read that these three women, we're not going to read this. Three women have a conversation. They're talking about why are they talking? Because it's a chick flick. Remember, they're talking it up. They're talking it up. And, and, you know, Naomi decides she's going to go back to Bethlehem. And she tells her daughter-in-laws, go back to your home. Go back to Moab. These are Moabite women, remember. Get married to Moabite men. Have cute Moabite babies. Hopefully they don't get sacrificed to Shemosh somewhere down the road. Live your life and be good. So Orpah goes back 
apparently changed her name, started a TV show, became a big hit, made millions of dollars. But Ruth, Ruth stays. And in verse 16, Ruth speaks for the very first time. And this is one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. And it's all over. Like when people get married, this is something they put there all the time. It says, Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. And we all know this. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Amen. Amen. So maybe they can convert. But this is a massive declaration by Ruth, a Moabite woman living in a sinful place, not only of her loyalty to Naomi, but of her commitment to the God of Israel. Isn't that an amazing thing? That's the effect that a strong, godly character of Naomi can have on somebody. She's like, I'm not staying here. I'm going to go where your God is. I'm going to go where I can be in the presence of God. I want to be with your people, Ruth and Naomi. Leave Moab, Moab and return to God in Bethlehem. And if there is not a picture of repentance in the Bible that is not more clear than this, I challenge you to find it because this is the absolute picture of repentance that God wants from us. That's a word we don't like to talk about a lot, repentance, right? Jesus says, repent and believe. They go hand in hand. What did they do? They turned their back toward Moab and turned their face towards God. That's the picture of repentance. That's the picture of repentance right there. We have got to turn our back towards sin, whatever that is in your life, and turn your face towards God. Repent. Go back. Turn your back. Turn your back. The word in in Hebrew, shub, the word that means returned, is in the Bible over 1,100 times. Repentance, return, back to God. We've got to turn our back. We've got to turn towards him. And this highlights one of the most important truths that any of us can learn. To get to the right place, you have to leave the wrong place. Come on. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? It does. And it's so difficult for us to do. But if we want what is good and what is right and what is living in God's will and design, we got to leave the wrong place, whatever your Moab is. And I'm going to get real with some people right now. If you're calling on God to help you marry the right person, maybe you got to break up with the wrong one. If you're calling on God to help you stop spending money, maybe you got to take Amazon off of all your devices. Maybe you got to stay out of the stores. If you're calling on God to give you more time with family, maybe you need to delete Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and Twitter off your phone so you're not spending hours upon hours scrolling endlessly. Maybe you got to stop going out with your friends every night. Maybe you got to stop working 15 hours a day. If you want to get to the right place, you have got to leave the wrong place. Ruth made one decision to turn her back on Moab and turn to God in faith. Not because she had known God yet, but because she knew Naomi knew God and she wanted what Naomi had. She turned her back on the sin and she turned her face toward God. One decision, one act of repentance, one choice changed her life, changed her legacy. And this is going to blow your mind. It changed the course of the world. It changed the course of the world. That's right. It changed the course of the world. You've heard of Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally translates to house of bread. Who was born in Bethlehem? 
the bread of life, was born in Bethlehem. But not just was he born in Bethlehem, he was the direct descendant of Ruth, a Moabite woman who turned her back from the sin and turned her face towards God. She is a direct descendant of Ruth. That is Jesus. If Ruth hadn't returned to Bethlehem, if Ruth hadn't turned her back on Moab, the sinful life, and turned towards God, we would never have Jesus. It just wouldn't, I mean, maybe it would have happened. Maybe God would have found another way, but I don't know. This is the story we have. This is how it happened. A direct descendant of a woman who turned her back from the sinful life and turned her face towards God. Now, this is a chick flick that I like. (laughs) Through one decision, Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord and Savior of the world, the one true God, the spotless Lamb, The price for our salvation through one decision, Jesus was born. One moment of repentance, one single decision. I wonder if there is some part of your lives and mine that is still in Moab. We claim my God is my king, but maybe... Maybe we're still doing what's right in our own eyes. We claim my God is my king, but maybe when everybody goes to sleep, you open up your laptop and you're clicking on that site that you can't show anybody else. We claim my God is my king, but maybe when Amazon pops up and your Alexa goes ding and says, we recommend you buy this, you're like, buy it. We claim my God is my king, but we're still doing what's right in our own eyes. And look, I'm not judging you. I promise you I'm not because this is my life. I have claimed the title of Christian since I was 12 years old. 12 years old, I got on my knees, I prayed, Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God, and I want you to be Lord of my life. And I lived that way for a while. And then I lived in Moab for a while. For a long while, over a decade. I was proud to say to somebody, oh, I'm a Christian. And yet I still lived in Moab. A lot of my life was in Moab. Sometimes we got to turn our back on Moab if we want to get to the right place. And if you claim God as your king, it's more important than ever to turn your back, leave the wrong place to get to the right place. So how do we apply this? Right? Because God says if you just read the word and you don't do anything with it, you're fooling yourself. How do we apply this? And I'm going to apply this to your lives by asking you one question. What one decision or action can you make or take today that will change the trajectory of your life and your legacy? What is it? We all got something, folks. I got something. What one decision could you make, what one act could you take that will cause you to leave Moab and turn to Bethlehem, to leave something sinful in your life and turn to Bethlehem. Because look, repentance isn't a one-time thing. It's not just like we say, I'm going to leave my life of sin and turn towards you, Jesus, and then we're all good. Repentance is a daily thing. Every day we should be on our knees saying, God, what part of my life is still in Moab? What part of my life do I need to turn my back on? What part of my life do I need to surrender so that I can turn my face fully towards the God of the universe, the God who created everything? 
everything. I don't know what yours looks like. Maybe you need to cut up those credit cards. Maybe you need to apologize to somebody and that relationship's been festering for years and years and years. Maybe you just need to make a decision that my God is my king and he's going to be the top priority in my life. Maybe you need to break up with somebody and move out. Maybe you need to block somebody off your phone. Maybe you need to re-add somebody on your phone. I don't know. Maybe you need to confess an addiction that you've been hiding in the closet for years. Maybe you need to live on less so you can give more to God that he deserves. Maybe you need to surrender something to God. Maybe you need to surrender someone to God. Because if you're in a relationship right now, look, I'm not advocating that you divorce your husband or wife because they may not be a believer. But at that point, the only thing you can do is to surrender that person to God and pray that God's Holy Spirit invades their soul, invades their heart, and causes them to have a conversion relationship. Maybe you need to surrender someone to God who is off the rails. We've been doing that for years in our family. We have surrendered a situation, my son, to God. And God is working miracles in that situation. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Maybe, maybe it's just that you need to fall to your knees in broken repentance and surrender to Jesus. If you want to get to the right place, you've got to leave the wrong place. That word, return, 1,100 times. And it's not even about the whole word, repentance or return. Because the best part is the re. The re is the best part. The re is the important part because when we rebuke the enemy and we return to God and we repent from our sins and we receive Jesus, some amazing things happen. You will be reborn. You will be renewed in your life. You will be reconciled to the God who created the heavens and the earth. You will be able to rejoice through all circumstances. You will be able to reap the rewards of a relationship with Jesus. There will be revival in your life. You will be restored. You will be refreshed. You will be rebuilt. You will be renewed. You will have a relationship with the God who created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. That is what you can expect by one act of repentance. Leaving your Moab and turning towards Bethlehem. Turning your face towards God. What one decision could you make? One action that could change the trajectory of your life and your legacy. Because if we want to get to the right place, we have got to leave the wrong place. It doesn't all wrap up neatly like a little movie, right, with the script. We have to make a decision. And, and maybe you're here today and that decision is the first decision. That decision is the first decision to actually get into a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you need to make that decision Ruth made in front of Naomi. I'm not going to stay in this sinful life anymore. I am going to return back to where God wants me, where God designed me in relationship with him so that Jesus can be my rock. Jesus can be my anchor and Jesus can be my life so I can be reborn, so I can be renewed, so I can be rejoicing in all my circumstances. Maybe you've never made that one first decision. And so I'll invite you to make that right here today. With all heads bowed, all eyes closed, you can pray with me. Jesus, I believe you are the Lord and Savior of the world. Jesus, I believe you died for my sins. 
Jesus, I believe you rose, defeating my separation with God. Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I turn my back on my old ways, and I turn toward you. I surrender. Thank you so much, Jesus. And God, thank you for anybody who has come to that place of decision today, that first step of repentance, turning from our old life and turning toward you. Because none of the words I say are doing it. It's all about you. It's all about your Holy Spirit. It's all about your grace. It's all about your mercy. And we're so grateful that you see us in our sin, and yet you say, that's okay. I've made a way for you. And Father, for those of us who might be calling you king, and still making side trips on the weekend to Moab. Help us to turn our back on that once and for all. I know it's difficult. You know it's difficult. With man, it's impossible, but with you, all things are possible. So help us to turn from the wrong so that we can go towards the right. We love you so much, God. We ask that you keep everybody healthy and safe until we meet again. We'll pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And together as a church, we'll say amen. Folks,